is episode 130 of the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. Each week on the Mindset Game Podcast, we bring you an inspirational athlete, message, or expert talking about human optimization to teach you how to change the perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Dr. Fergus Connolly. He is one of the world's foremost human performance thought leaders and influencers and has applied performance science with leading sports, military, and business teams. He is the only coach of full-time roles in every major sport, including soccer with Liverpool and Bolton Wanderers, professional and college football with the San Francisco 49ers and the University of Michigan, and rugby with the Welsh national team. Let Fergus's experience make your team game changers. In the episode, we talked about why he got into sports performance, who were his role models growing up, why it is so important to use critical thinking when using social media, the initial ideas behind his book, Game Changer, The Art of Sports Science, and finally, the practical applications of sports science. Make sure to share this with your friends on your Instagram story, on Twitter, or on Facebook. They can find this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that they listen to podcasts by searching for Mindset Game Podcast. Take a screenshot and tag at Fergus.Connolly and at James O. Roberts 11. Without further ado, let's get into today's show. So welcome onto the show, Fergus. Thank you very much for having me. So before we delve into today's topic, Fergus, can you talk us about, well, what was the initial stages of how you got into the profession of looking at sports performance? Oh, I think it started when... Uh going to football games with my father and um, being around the house at home when people would come and visit and talk about football and talk about, um, that was, I guess, where I got inspired or interested in sport. And then, of course, you know, on a Sunday, you've got soccer games, sports games, and uh, that's, you know, that's your favorite waste of time or, um, you know, spending time and, um, I think you're always, I think, you know, I was speaking with someone about this earlier today, you know, young men and women are looking for role models and you're always looking to learn and try and aspire to, to improve yourself. Um, and I think years ago it were, it was, you know, probably more politicians than they were, um, superseded by sports stars. And I guess now you've got social media stars um so uh so i think you know as i was coming through or growing up there were local sports stars um and then you know getting to university getting to college um you know you start to um the internet was being invented so just information was more accessible and you know you read books um read stories about um, sports stars, you know, who heroes, I guess, who you wanted to look up to be, uh, or look look up at and wanted to be, and I think it's a wonderful thing. It can it can be a wonderful thing to inspire young people, um, and uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much how it started. And 
this is probably out of interest for myself now. Who were your role models growing up then? Oh wow. Um I think my parents were initially in, you know, um and then as, you know, as you grow up there were local athletes that, you know, that you looked up to and then you know, as you got older, I think the first major one probably would have been Michael Jordan. Um, you know, everybody says that. But I think it was at a stage where he was, um, you know, at the peak of his career. Um, and, uh, you know, you would hear these stories of people talking about this basketball player that was unbelievable. And then you try and, you know, the only thing we had access to back then was, uh, you know, DVDs. And there were soccer players, of course, like, I mean, in the UK, um, like people like, you know, Gary Speed, Paul Gascoigne, like the, the Liverpool team, um, the old Liverpool team of Ian Rush and, um, you know, even Kenny Dalglish at the time. And then, um, like, I mean, I, I remember Paul Gascoigne going to, uh, going to Italy to play for Lazio at the time. And so all of those kind of memories while I was bringing back, I've, you know, I haven't thought of these things in a long, long time. But yeah, those were kind of the formative, you know, formative years where uh, I, those things probably left an imprint. So it, for me, I guess it was at a point where, um, yes, you, you, you know, heard of sports people, etc. But the world was just expanding at an enormous rate in terms of information and knowledge um, and access to it, sorry, more so than, than it, it's always been there, but just getting access to it. Well, I, th- I think I'd agree with you, Fergus, because you talk to the probably the current generation now, they kind of look in a, like a little bit of per- 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 uh, perplexion when you say, you had dial-up internet. It's like, well, I'm not making it up. That was a reality. Yeah, yeah. Like I would probably have a seizure if I heard the, you know, the tone again because it's such a, it was such an annoying thing, and you're waiting, and um, you had the little um, uh, egg timer thing rotating forever on your, your thing. I think what's really interesting though is that um, for so looking at the the current generation of kids coming through now. We had limited access to information. So you would generally read in a book about a sports star or you would see something on the news or you would watch a game. And so that was one medium, one method of of learning about these people. And you would hear, and what I was interested in was how do they prepare? How do they get better? Um, Now there's so much information out there and a lot of it's just not accurate and not true. Um, and also, um, they were removed from you to a certain degree, which is healthy, which is a good thing. Now, now because you've got, they appear to be so accessible and there's so much information, um, a lot of it is manufactured and contrived. So you don't really know, um, what the, you know, what the superstar that, you know, that you're looking up to really is, um, is about. And, um, I think obviously, um, you know, when you get to, so for example, when you take things like soul and that, when, 
um, the, you know, when the truth starts to come out, um, you know, then, you know, people start to see, okay, well, this is what elite sport is really like and things like that. So I think there was a, um, there was a naivety, but there was also a, um, an honesty, I think, of, about sport a little bit back back then that, that things have changed a lot. And because athletes know that there's so much information that they can present, they take a lot of care with what they present and how they present it. So from that perspective, Fergus, do you think Twitter is, uh, in your opinion, both a good and a bad thing for an athlete then? Do you mean in terms of them presenting themselves and marketing themselves? Yes. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. I think it's you know it it allows athletes to present themselves how they want to be presented and gives them control. Um, but I worry for people coming through who want to learn uh, and find out the truth because you know it's harder and harder to decipher. Um, what works and what doesn't so you know for young coaches coming through or young athletes um, critical thinking is one of the skills that is most important in in your development being able to decipher what's true what isn't and uh, I think that that's you know the, the best coaches are the, the most um, judicious most careful um uh, you know, readers of information or, or you know, knowledge that's that's on Twitter. So I think it's a wonderful medium for athletes and for people to get their message out. But um, you know, for every positive or for every truthful tweet, there's probably seven or eight, you know, ones that are either advertising, misleading, or whatnot. And if we kind of come to the present day now, and you uh, publishing your book, Game Changer. What was kind of the initial uh, initial idea behind it? So, I guess it's really just follows on from what we were speaking about. I, you know, was fascinated by sport. Wanted to learn um, how athletes prepared and and basically what the secrets were. So I would study strength and conditioning to try and understand how to get stronger. Then when you know, I spent time with the strength coach, they would say, you know, they would reaffirm it's definitely strength and conditioning, but, you know, maybe my guys aren't getting faster. Well, it, you just get them stronger. And then you go and try and learn from a sprint coach. And, okay, they get a little bit faster, but we're getting a few more injuries. Let's go on. Okay, so let's find the there's flexibility expert. Let's go and learn. So each, at each juncture, I realized slowly, it took me a long time to slow, for it to dawn on me that, in or, that there was no one secret that it was how you pull all of these pieces together. And I, all through my career, there was never one coach I could go to, one true expert who had studied all of the different areas and who could put it together into a holistic program. And that's what Game Changer is. You know, I had a long Excel document that I would add to um, that just simply listed all of the various topics that needed to be understood and um a lot of it went into game changer the rest i used for auditing so if i go to an organization to audit a team or an organization these are all of the different elements that must be considered you know are they there so game changer was an attempt to look at everything because very often and my experience is primarily in team sport when you go to a team 
um, in a metabolic speed program or next and strength program or nutrition program, but they have no psychologist or they've got very poor recovery. Well, it doesn't matter if your strength program is the best in the world if everything else is either absent or poor, you're not going to win games. So Game Changer was an attempt to look at, let's look at everything. And so you're aware of everything and then you can start to optimize each of the different things. It's not about maximizing, it's about optimizing all of the elements in relation to each other. But I would be surprised in the modern day sporting environment, especially at the elite level, that they wouldn't have access to a, a sports psychologist. Am I wrong in thinking that? Though? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, you'd be surprised. First of all, you'd be surprised at how many teams don't have them. Secondly, um, there are quite a few organizations who don't see the value in them. But also, you know, in, in, in defense of them, there are quite a lot of, you know, average psychologists. It's the same across all the domains. I'm not having to go with them. Like it's the same with nutrition, strength, and conditioning. It's, it's not a case. Like there are some organizations who don't need them. There's some organizations who've got excellent head coaches and assistant coaches who actually do a very, very good job. Um, and many organizations um, make the mistake of actually going to you know, a major club, looking at everything they're doing and writing down all the job titles, coming back and trying to recreate the job titles, as opposed to looking at the overall model and going, okay, where are we weak and wh where do, what do we need to support with an actual role? as opposed to maybe assigning responsibility to something else. And there's also a pathway in terms of development. So if you, you know, if you were to take over Manchester City in the morning, you might go, okay, I'll apply, you know, I'll find a psychologist in two years' time, but let's get all the basics in, in place or whatever it might be. Um, so it's about really, how I describe it is it's about playing a piano. Um, you don't bang on all of the keys all of the time and you don't need to play all the keys but you need to know which are there and then when to play them well that's a different different uh, way of thinking I, I never thought of that but uh, but then if we use my experience within sport and um, we go back to when i was in uh, gb rowing we had access to a sports psychologist and they would be there at major uh, competitions but from my recollection, I never saw one of the athletes actually utilize it. So you're thinking, well, what is the purpose of it? But then probably if you had a discussion with the psychologist, I guess it's a what-if scenario maybe, or they're there for additional support. Well, I think there are two things. First of all, Olympic sports very very different from team sports on so many levels and because you can share resources as well i think sometimes you can have access and you use the word you know access or availability um doesn't mean that they're present all the time but there may be access to them um which is better than not having them um so it's the allocation of resources is a big challenge in the olympic sports um the second thing is that uh you know Having a tool doesn't necessarily mean that you can use it. So just because you've got, and, and it works, works both ways because very often you see unfairly to them, a psychologist, psychiatrist, you know, parachuted into a program for a short period and expected to work miracles. Um, 
when in reality the role should be to, to be the fire inspector, not to be the fireman. In other words, to help prevent issues, create models that help the athlete become self-sufficient, not to be called in when something goes wrong. And with one military unit, you know, that's something that we were working on is to help establish, you know, left of boom so that you, you know, can prevent these things. Um, but also at the truly elite end of performance, you're dealing with type A personalities. You're dealing with people who very often want to have a certain amount of control over what they do. And so it makes more sense on every single level to help upskill them with a model by which they can identify the issues, give better feedback to the psychologist and help them uh, not hold their hand, but help them on the journey as they, you know, come to a conclusion about what it is that they're, they're doing. So it's, um, it's, you know, it, it is very, very different from Olympic to team sports, but it's really about trying to move, like I say, left of boom to try and be proactive rather than reactive. Well, I think I was very much like that, but I was probably fortunate as an athlete and also studying at the same time, uh, which sports like with being a sports scientist, I was able to, well, we, we use that word access, utilize my lecturers if I had a problem or I didn't understand certain issues that were going on with me. So it being, as you said, very much proactive as as opposed to reactive to the to the situation and say, well, what can I do in this circumstance to be able to better my performance so be if I use the example for the listeners it would be be at time management be better at things like that so I wasn't having to uh, juggle so to speak multiple eggs all at once so be it uh, training workloads coursework lectures and all that I think it very much taught me how to time manage my time um, more efficiently and I think that's something I learned maybe subconsciously from sport with periodization and I've been able to implement it in my academic life but then on the flip side of that I think that's where I excelled very much was in sports psychology because it was the one uh, sub-subject within sports science where they would kind of go hand in hand well, what I could learn from sport uh, what I can learn in my lectures, I can actually put into practice in the real world, and what I do in the real world, I can put into stuff that I'm actually writing. Well, I think, yeah, there, there are two things that I think are very, very important, particularly when you when we you know discuss psychology. One is that, um, you know, I, I describe performance as. Um, like the the electric the heating system in a house, and there are a set number of valves on on all of the pipes. If all of those pipes are, if all of those valves are closed, there's no way for pressure to be released. And I'm talking about about life pressures, life valves, nothing to do with performance. But if so, if you release those valves, so like you speak about everything you spoke about mentioned there was to do with life issues, time management, personal issues. If those valves are functioning fine, then the athlete's free to actually operate, you know, maximally um, or optimally. They're able to draw on all the resources. 
in many, in most cases, when an athlete fails on the field or fails in their area of performance, very often the root cause has got nothing to do with performance. It's got to do with girlfriend issue, boyfriend issue, got uh, an issue to do with family, um, something else off the field. So there's that whole aspect to it. The other thing is that, yeah, um, performance psychology is very, very different from just conventional lifestyle in that the environment is different. There are a lot of, the principles are similar and there are a lot of similarities, but the environment changes things. So the the tool needed sometimes has to be very, very different. And not every psychologist has been in that environment and can themselves adjust to it. So it's not the psychologist's fault or anything like that, but it's that not all psychologists have had that experience, so they don't understand maybe that a certain approach needs to be perhaps more aggressive, or perhaps sometimes certain approaches shouldn't be taken. Um, and on those lines, um, you have to be particularly careful with elite athletes that you ask the correct questions so that you don't scratch uh, what is always a very thin layer of doubt. Uh, sorry, of confidence, you know, protecting the athlete from from doubt, um, and that can be that can be dangerous. You know, sometimes you, you know thoughts put into an athlete's head can, at the wrong time, can cause cause certain issues. So, um, psychology in elite performance is 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 uh, can be complex. But this is probably you raised an interesting point there, Fergus. Obviously. The, the the athlete in question has uh, personal problems or what may be that is affecting their performance, but is it because they are to some degree confident in that environment, be the, in the context of the sport now, that they're able to, to some degree, subdue that kind of negative energy, as, as we could put it? Absolutely. Like, I mean, Michael Jordan's famous for saying that on the court that was the safest place he felt the problem is that in elite sport um what you have an athlete can manage one or two things elite athletes are world-class compensators they can compartmentalize they can compensate for one or two off the field issues the challenge is when they start to accumulate and they start to add up so they've got multiple issues that they have to deal with. So it might not just be a relationship issue. It could be a financial issue. It could be a contract issue. When all of those accumulate over time, and now there is, none of them are resolved over a period of time, that causes stress. Now combine that if you have an athlete, perhaps a younger athlete who doesn't have a particularly healthy lifestyle, now you've got an athlete who is unprepared, um, or sorry, is not resourced to compensate for those. Now, if they have not had experience also, now they're unprepared to deal with it. But if you've got an athlete who has had, you know, um, some preparation and some mentoring in terms of understanding things psychologically, can it's like whack-a-mole can, you know, that they can deal with one issue and put it away to bed quickly as they come up and they have less stress, they're less affected, their performance is less affected. But just because you can get away with an issue as a once-off, um, you know, doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, or just because an athlete's able to handle one small issue, 
um, doesn't mean that they're immune to failure over time, you know, if a number of things crop up. Everybody has a breaking point. What is kind of some of the limitations to if the athlete, and I'll probably use myself as an example now, I think I would exemplify what you've just mentioned now. I think it's been different stresses throughout the athletic career have all come to a head now. Well, I've been retired a few years, but they've all seen, I guess they've all lumped up. I've not dealt with them fully back then and kind of brushed them under the carpet. Oh, I think I've dealt with it, but I guess I haven't. And it's caused problems now. Obviously, that's a problem for me, but what a kind of some, if you're not prepared as an athlete to be able to deal with it and have some of the uh, expertise that I've been able to master through my own experiences how deliberate uh, deliberate i can't think of the word how how um limiting would it be on the individual or would that be very case by case i think you i think you might be um there are two things one is that some issues you're right some issues may carry over from the competitive period into um into retirement but Retirement itself um, reveals unresolved issues that athletes have not faced. So in society and in life today, when you're incredibly busy, um, the busyness hides you know, fundamental issues that we don't uh, perhaps address and sometimes we avoid. Um, in my opinion, there are four things that everybody needs, and athletes tend to put this off, or they are um, they are presented, or they are answered in some cases. Two of them certainly are answered for them straight away. The first is that an identity. You know, who are you? Most athletes are already that question's answered for them. I'm, you know, a shot putter, sprinter, volleyball player, whatever it might be. So they're given that answer, which is not quite true. We can go back to that in a minute. And then they're given a purpose which is to win games or be an Olympic champion or whatever it is, which again is not quite accurate. Third thing is everybody needs somebody to love or to love them. Uh, and you can survive with one or the other, but you can't survive without both for a period of time. And the third thing is then they must have something to believe in or you know a, a spiritual understanding, not necessarily a God, but they must have a model of... Um, of understanding spirituality. So even atheists believe in something. They believe in the fact that there isn't God, but there must be. So those four things, I think, are critical. But in elite athletes, in terms of an identity, when you retire or you move away from your sport, it feels as though your identity has been taken away from you because you identified yourself as a rugby player. As You didn't identify yourself as Fergus Connolly, somebody who enjoys helping other people i just happen to do it through work or do whatever um so that's the, the the first thing and then your purpose is you know what do you see your purpose in terms of life like what are you here to do what you know what is it to bring happiness to other people is it to share you know in your success with family and friends you know what is your purpose again when you retire that's taken away from you because you have this um other purpose and you see it this is not this is not at all unique to sport. 
people who in professional career or whatever they identify themselves as a you know as a CEO or as a whatever it is and their purpose is to make either as much money or profit for an organization when that's taken from them then they, they get confused and um, the other two then are self-explanatory but identity and purpose in sport is somewhat superficial but it's important that the athlete recognizes who they really are um, as opposed to what the public tells them they are. But isn't the modern athlete more conducive of that stereotype because they're being, in essence, trained to do that from a younger age more and more now? Do they have that problem even more so? We'll talk about soccer more specifically because that's probably the easy analogy to use. Once they get to the certain point, be it if they're lucky, say 18 years old, and they're then put on the scrap heap from an academy perspective, how do they deal with it? Because they, for, say for example, purpose, they've been in that academy since probably maybe four or five years old. Well, that just means that they're in a more difficult position because from a very young age, you see it in collegiate football in the states and college football where kids, you know, come to come to the college program and they're going to the NFL. When in reality, there might be only one or two guys out of a hundred and something that are going to make it. You know, so it's as far as they're concerned that they're going to the league. And when they don't make it, they get a you know a, a, a an injury um, or whatever it might be. Then they struggle to understand who they are and what their purpose is. That's why it's so important that um, the development of the athlete is really about personal development, first and foremost. That's why I hate the term, I despise the term long-term athlete development. It's long-term person development. You know, athlete comes second. And I actually don't like the term at all because it really should be long-term, you know, player development from a team sport perspective because all we simply do are produce you know athletes but who can't play a game and I'm, again I'm talking from team sport but um, it really should be about personal development LTPD long term personal development well you never know it might change uh, down the line <laughs> possibly. possibly but I think uh, it's particularly important like I mean I've seen look we, we've all had even in you know like I said even in security forces for something presents to somebody where they realize that they're not going to be able to fulfill what they thought their identity and purpose was, and they cannot handle it. They just cannot understand. Their life revolves around um, this perception um, that, that they had, and very often what others have of them, and it's very debilitating. But you see it as well, and you see it in modern society where people try and live up to an image that they believe that they should live up to, that is expected of them by their neighbors or by family or friends rather than, you know, being true to, to themselves. That's where a lot of, you know, what we refer to as identity crisis, um, you know, occur. I know. I, I think for me personally, Fergus, I think we talk about maybe segmenting my life into the athlete period of just over a decade. I didn't have an identity crisis. It probably helped that, well, first and foremost, I've got a disability, so I can 
kind of disenfranchised myself a little bit. Well, yes, I was an athlete, but you can't take away the disability is not going to go anywhere because I've had it since birth. Uh, I think that period of time, well, about half of it was as a student, so was, I could have that shift between, well, let's have this. This time is for training. I'll use it for whatever method I need to do, get out of frustration, whatever it is, to get away from the academic side of things. But then when I have to be, uh, be it studying, writing coursework, or in a lecture, that's time to be an academic. And, and I think, Abs- and that's that's an incredibly important point because you see it in, you see it in rugby, which has just recently turned professional in in you know in the relative sense, where um, there was you know having coached some players who had been amateur um, and now had the opportunity to be professional, they were acutely aware of who they were. They were acutely aware of who they were not. And they knew, you know, they had um, uh, an environment outside of professional sport, which is what you've referred to. You you were acutely aware of who you were. Um, you know, you weren't living in a bubble, so to speak, which the modern elite superstar, youth superstar is. So this idea that we can bring young men into a bubble, not expose them to what the world is really like. And we do this by accident. This is not a criticism necessarily. People, you know, who create academies and in, in, in not all academies, but, um, you know, have, have mis, you know, I guess inadvertently created this, this issue, but, you know, created one issue to solve another. But one thing that uh, Tony Smith was the rugby league coach at Warrington was, and he ensured that every year when his players, young players would come in, the very first thing he did was they would spend two weeks working with, um, you know, a, a local tradesman and they weren't allowed to come back to start, you know, rugby academy until, you know, they had completed two successful weeks and got a positive report. And it was to create an awareness in the kids, um, you know, a number of things, you know, can you take instruction from somebody when it may not necessarily make sense to you, um, give you an appreciation of what you'll be doing if you don't actually make it in rugby or you don't, you know, really put the effort in. But also to keep, for athletes to understand that they live in the real world and they're very fortunate to play this game and get paid for it. Um, so you're right, it doesn't affect all athletes, um, but the modern um a very professional approach can it has risks to it. Let's say it's not. I'm not saying it's bad. It just has has risks to it. But and if we step out of the realms of sport now, Fergus, would you say to some extent society, to some general sense, has put people into a bubble because of well, what is PC and what is not PC? So then people. If you talk about this from perspective, probably when we were kids, and you're, you're probably a little bit you're older than me. Oh, thank you. I put well, <laughs> well it, to put it into perspective. But obviously, be it when we were younger, people told you how it was. If it, it and you, you kind of took it on the chin. If you you didn't, uh, I agree. It, it was probably a sense of motivation. Where if you've got to kind of walk on eggshells to a certain extent in, in this day and age, because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Like I mean, PC is one way to put it. I think, you know, um, I often say to people that, 
you know, 50% of the people don't want to tell the truth and the other 50% don't want to hear it. Um, it is one of the biggest issues, that it's one of the biggest bugbears or annoyances that I have. I always want to hear the truth. And I don't care whether it's bad news or good news, just when I know the truth, then I can do something about it. There is nothing worse. There's two things that that really annoy me. One is when you're either not told the truth or somebody just doesn't tell you something because they think it's going to annoy you. Well, what do you want to do? Tell you know, not tell them so it annoys you. Um, you know, and then they find out later or it dawns on them or whatever. Just spit it out and let's get to the you know, mm. let's let's get straight to the point. And um, the best coaches I've been around have always been you know, direct, you know where you stand. You might not like some of the things you hear, but you it has always been the most successful programs when you've had that, um, you know, I, I call it a brutal honesty. Let's just get to the point. And it's not about, it It only becomes an issue when you start to apportion blame. It, like the truth is not a problem. It's when people uh, apportion blame. The truth is not a problem. It's only when people... Um, you know, associate fear or shame with it, then you've got it, then it's an issue. But that's up to you, you know, as a performance director, coach, or even the athlete, you know, to understand, listen, we, we want the truth because this is brilliant. And the, telling the truth should be rewarded, you know, and I'm always, always make a point of being grateful to anybody who comes to me with bad news because, you know, I want to know the bad news quick and I want to know the good news because there's something I can fix here. I, I I definitely agree with you in that sense. It's it's better to hear the truth, and, and whereas instead of somebody going kind of going round the round the well, what to be round the hurdles, so to speak, to get to you're just you're giving me an answer you what you assume I want to hear. Whereas if you be up front and say, well, like you said, it's black and white. It's one as a performer, you're able to. Uh, take it upon yourself to improve because they're giving you the points. Well, you're not quite good at this, this, this. Okay, I can go. With it. I can go away and do something about it. Sure, like like take a performance staff. You know, if you've got a performance group, so you've got nutritionist, therapist, strength coach, blah, blah blah, everybody around the table, and you know you talk, you're discussing a particular athlete. I want to know what everybody thinks, and I don't care whether you agree with me or disagree with me. I, I want to hear your opinion, and let's thrash it out. And you know. You know, I think he's, you know, recently had a conversation about a particular athlete. I don't think he's fast. No, no, he's strength coach. Because no, he is fast. He's got speed numbers. Yeah, but watch the video. He's not, he's not, his starting speed is not fast. He's not starting speed. And, you know, therapist goes, well, it's actually his ankle mobility. Okay, brilliant. So it's, two of us are, are wrong. It's actually, it's a separate issue. But unless you can, now you can dance around it and try and, um, uh, you know, not that you don't care about people's opinion, but let's just get to the problem quickly and brilliant. We solve it as a team. And that comes down to having, you know, just, just being honest and, and upfront, tell the truth. With that comes trust. And when you've got trust, then you can have a certain amount of conflict to resolve the problem or chaos to, to resolve the problem. But first and foremost, it just has to be, you know, uh, an honesty where you don't Again, it's not about you're not pointing fingers and you're just getting to you're getting problems solved um, fast. So it's probably a, a good question to ask you now, folks. How would you replicate that scenario at a lower level, say amateur status, where they don't have access to speed coach, nutritionist, uh, psychologist, and that? 
how would the in most cases the the coach is a volunteer how, would it be a case of having the whole team round a table so to speak and having out that way there's a there's a myth that the there's a myth that the more elite the team the better organized it is there's a there's a sweet spot where you have um, the right number of people around that you can get things done in many many cases the bigger the organization the more staff the worse the performance is in terms of efficiency and effectiveness there's absolutely no doubt in that so if you take the all blacks you know Gilbert Noga their psychologist I remember him telling me you know the ideal numbers between 10 and 12 as far as he's concerned for the rugby team but I've been around organizations that have you've needed two extra buses for the staff for all the assistance and everything else it's just a waste of time it's an absolute waste of time because you're producing, you're not being efficient. You're just clogging up processes. You're producing reports and data that aren't even being looked at. Um, so you truly need an efficient, effective organization. So at the, you know, when people refer to it at the lower levels, you have a huge advantage because you only have to ask one person to get an answer. Whereas in these other organizations, you ask one person, he has to ring his assistant, he has to go and find some other guy because he can't come into the room because you'd never get anything done and the third assistant back who actually was saving the data on Excel spreadsheet on his own private computer because you just can't you know what I mean so it just becomes a mess so there is a, a critical point where you have too many people in an organization Brendan Rogers when I was at Liverpool had a brilliant saying he used to say small is big small backroom team gets big results And my final question to you, Fergus, before we wrap up the episode. If you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Know your identity. Find your purpose. Make sure you've got somebody to love and to love you. And then make sure that you understand what your spiritual model is. So once again, Fergus, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate it, James. Thank you. That's been my pleasure. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Fergus know what you thought of the episode by tagging him over on Instagram at fergus.connolly, on Twitter and Facebook. And again, do check out his book, Game Changer, Art of Sports Science, applying sports science and learning the practical application of coaching and performance science. Make sure to check that out. The link will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsum.com under the category psychology. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.